The Underground Railroad was this very loose connection of, of people all across the North and in, into the South as well. And you had to have, it had to be an utterly trustworthy network. So it became clear that Martha Coffin Wright and Frances Seward would be very useful contacts for Harriet Tubman to have. So it's clear that on one of Martha Coffin Wright's visits to her sister Lucretia, Lucretia introduced her to Harriet Tubman. They were immediately sort of co-conspirators on the Underground Railroad, and then they became fast friends. So Harriet provided this source of extraordinary inspiration to these two white women, and they helped her in whatever ways they could, including uh, harboring passengers whom she brought with her on the Underground Railroad. Hi, I'm Sylvia Beckerman. Join me today as I talk to an extraordinary woman who is changing the world by making a difference in her life and the lives of those around her. Hi, everyone. I am Dorothy Wickenden, the executive editor of The New Yorker, and uh, my new book is out today, The Agitators. Uh, and I'm delighted to be talking with Sylvia on Sylvia and Me. Dorothy, I'm so happy to, to be able to have you here. And we are taping this on the day that your book is actually released, The Agitators. It's three friends, um, abolition and women's rights. And, you know, women have for centuries, uh, you know, for some young people don't know how much we have fought for everything that we do whether it be property, credit, voting rights, are all rights for women. But you chose three women, one who most people have heard of, the other two, not so much. You have uh, Frances Seward, who was a politician's wife, who aided the freedom uh, seekers while arguing with her husband for immediate abolition. You have Martha Coffin Wright, who was a Quaker mother of seven, who organized women's rights and abolitionist conventions. And then you have Harriet Tubman, uh, who I'm sure most people have heard of. She's gonna be on the $20 bill. You go over four decades, four decades of these women. And, it's, and it starts when Harriet was a slave and you move forward. These are three women who come from such different backgrounds and living such different lives. Can you tell us um, why these three women and how did you even connect the three of them? So it's an, it, it was a, a serendipitous encounter, actually. I was working on my previous book, Nothing Daunted, which was about my grandmother who grew up in Auburn, New York. And she had said that her grandparents lived next door to the Sewards. And so I went to Auburn to check out that claim, went to, uh, went to the Seward House Museum. I got that verified. And then I got a private tour of the museum during which the young education director told me all about Frances Seward. She was much more interested in talking about Frances Seward than she was about her famous husband. Uh, and I just, the stories of her were so remarkable. And along the way, I learned that, and I walked down into the original basement kitchen of the house and saw that that was where Frances Seward harbored uh, fugitive slaves in the 1850s. Uh, 
we we talked about how her best friend lived around the corner, Martha Coffin Wright, who was a Quaker mother of seven, as you say. And they were the only two radicals really in town, along with their husbands, who, who had fairly very progressive ideas as well. Not quite as progressive, but pretty, pretty far along. Uh, and so they were but they were also part of what was called the domestic sphere, which was for, for middle class and upper cl middle class women. Their role was to stay at home, bring up the children, cook and clean and serve as their husband's, uh, be constantly at their husband's side, doing whatever he might ask them to do. They had no freedom at all. There was no, once you were married, you had you gave up everything. You're in, if you had, had an inheritance, you gave that up, whatever, you gave up your own personal freedom. And that's something, and, uh, sorry to interrupt you, but yeah. as we're talking, that's something that a lot of, you know, we've talked, I've talked before about women not having credit, you know, being able to get credit on their own. And finally in 1972, they wrote, but we're talking about women who, when they, once they married, they gave up everything. They owned nothing and their husbands basically owned them. And, and coming along with that, was uh, the husband's ability to treat his, his wife in whatever way he wanted. So Francis Seward, I later discovered, as I began to put this story together, and I should say that they, they, I learned when I was at the Seward House Museum that day that Harriet Tubman lived a mile down the street and having bought a house that had been sold to her by the Sewards. So that, that was the germ of this book. And that was what got me started on this rather mon monumental seven years of research and trying to put their stories together. But what, one of the things I discovered as I was starting to read Frances Seward's correspondence was that her sister, who also lived in town early in her marriage, from 1829 to 1833 was being beaten by her husband. And Francis was already nominally a, a, a supporter of equal rights for all Americans. But when she, and she was there and she was witness to this abuse and he verbally abused this man, verbally abused her as well. But, and in her letter, she writes to her husband, there's nothing I can do. What, what, what can we do about Lizette's husband, this brute she is married to? And in the end, she had to call on her husband, Francis did, to, to help get this man in line. So that was just a complete awakening for Frances. She had married, she had read Mary Wollstonecraft about how women were effectively their husband's chattel, but here she saw it right in front of her. And it was just deeply shocking to her. And she had a similar experience a couple of years later when she and her husband went down south. She had never been south before. She had never seen slavery. She had been opposed to slavery. And she had a couple of experiences where she witnessed some of the most brutal examples of how enslaved people were treated. And she came back home an abolitionist. So that was her awakening. And she was aided in that by Martha Coffin Wright, who was a Quaker and who had held these views very strongly right from the beginning. And then when they met Harriet Tubman uh, in the early 1850s, she, she further radicalized them because here was this ensla formerly enslaved woman who had liberated herself, left her husband, left the rest of her family, walked out of slavery a hundred miles to Philadelphia and established a new life for herself and then began her Underground Railroad operations. So these three women from such different backgrounds 
became friends. They had a, a common thread and that thread was abolition and women's rights. Uh, so how did they even work together? I know that you mentioned that Harriet had, he, she lived a mile from them and actually had bought the property from Francis's uh, family. How was that even possible? Well, it certainly was illegal. I'll tell you that much. This was a really bold move. And historians have, have generally treated that sale of property, which took place in 1859, as William H. Seward's decision. And I concluded, after doing all of this uh, research and putting this together, that no, in fact, it was Francis Seward who made the decision to sell Harriet Tubman the house. Because thanks to the activism of other women who had objected for a decade about women, married women's inability to inherit, really inherit their own property and have any freedom at all, New York State had passed the Married Women's Property Act. So under that law, Frances now did own the property she had inherited from her father, and there was quite a bit of it. And she knew and, and was close enough to Harriet Tubman at that point that she knew that Harriet's parents, she had, she had been, but by that time, she, this was near the end of her operations, she had rescued uh, basically her entire family and taken them all the way up to Canada. Her, her parents were unwell. They hated the, the fr freezing winters up there in Canada. And Frances thought, well, it would make much more sense for Harriet Tubman to live in the middle of New York State, right here in Auburn. And I have the ability to make this happen. So she's decided to sell her this, this house for her, her, Harriet Tubman and her family a mile down the street. She and her husband had been uh, integrating the town for quite a while by making these sales to free black people. So, but to sell a house and, and all that land to a fugitive slave was illegal under the Fugitive Slave Act uh, of 1850. And, you know, she risked a prison term, a huge fine. And also women just didn't buy and sell property at that point, especially to fugitive slaves. So it was just an extraordinary thing for her to have done. I'd say, how did they originally meet? They met through a mutual contact on the, on the railroad who happened to be Martha's older sister, Lucretia Mott who lived in Philadelphia. That was where Harriet Tubman first lived when she came out of slavery. And when Tubman uh, established herself, she got a job and a, and, a, and a room in Philadelphia. And she decided she set out to get to know every abolitionist in town. One of them was Lucretia Mott, who was a Quaker minister, a, a total force of nature herself. Uh, she had been speaking publicly about human rights, broadly conceived for a very long time. And she, Tubman met her and it became, the, so the Underground Railroad was this very loose connection of, of people all across the North and in, into the South as well. And you had to have, it had to be an utterly trustworthy network. So it became clear that Martha Coffin Wright and Frances Seward would be very useful contacts for Harriet Tubman to have. So it's clear that on one of Martha Coffin Wright's visits to her sister Lucretia, Lucretia introduced her to Harriet Tubman. And then when Tubman was in Auburn at one point or another, there's no historical record about this, but you'd have to kind of surmise, and it's completely clear to me that this is what happened. Uh, 
Martha introduced Tubman to Francis. So they were immediately sort of co-conspirators on the Underground Railroad, and then they became fast friends. So Harriet provided this source of extraordinary inspiration to these two white women, and they helped her in whatever ways they could, including uh, harboring passengers whom she brought with her on the Underground Railroad. And Martha wrote, Francis was very discreet, but Martha wrote about this, especially one extraordinary journey. It was her last, it was Tubman's last uh, journey before the war began. And she, she arrived in Auburn late one night at her back door with six passengers. And, and Martha wrote about that, that, and that visit in great detail to her daughter, Ellen, who was away at a fancy boarding school. And she wanted her daughter to understand that this, this was what fugitive slaves had to deal with. And so you just mentioned her daughter. What did the families of both Martha and Francis think about what they were doing? Well, it was complicated. So uh, William Seward was, was very radical for his time as a politician. He was very, very strongly anti-slavery. In fact, he was despised across the South and there were, you know, his dogs were poisoned twice. I mean, there were threats on his life, uh, but he, he wasn't as radical as his wife was quickly becoming. And so at uh, once Seward became secretary of state to Abraham Lincoln, Francis was writing to him. She stayed in Auburn. She, he lived in Washington, where, where slavery was legal. She wrote to him you know, two or three times a week, at least. And she was constantly telling him that they, he had to use his power to liberate the slaves now. And he kept writing back and he said, I can't, I can't do that. And he, he was very close to a number of abolitionists, including Frederick Douglass, who was also a good friend of Martha's. And he would write to Douglas and others and say, you, your work is out in the street and from the pulpit, you prepare the public for this, for this new era in America. And once the public comes around, I then can, can uh, get legislation through Congress. So he was very pragmatic as a politician and Frances just hated that. She, you know, she was an outsider. And so she was able to see her moral clarity was, was unshadowed by all the practical constraints that he had to deal with. And as a matter of fact, uh, one of the things that we opened with was talking about how middle-class and upper-class women, uh, the wives, they were supposed to, especially a politician's wife, was supposed to be there and take care of all their, their gatherings and their parties and, and, and so on. And Francis, at one point, from what I understand, said enough um, and started staying in Auburn more and more and maybe going back for some events that it was proper for her to, you know, necessary for her to be at. Um, so that was big then also, where she just stood up for herself and said, this is not what I want to do anymore. Yes. And for her, here's this aristocratic woman who has been had a very traditional upbringing, except that she's she's gone to the very best schools. So she's very well educated, a big reader. She's very, very shy and retiring. But she develops over the years and she becomes more and more outraged by the compromises as she sees them that her husband is being forced to make. And she's afraid that her integrity as well as his 
are, are being uh, undermined. And so she finally, in 1859, you know, she is expected when she's in Washington to be the, the, the passive, quiet, obliging hostess. He had these monumental parties, you know, 400 guests, and he would invite, uh, you know, his political opponents, and she just didn't want anything to do with that. So she finally stood up to him and said, I am not going to be your hostess anymore. You know, our daughter-in-law can do that. I'm going back to Auburn. And that was when, that spring, when she went back to Auburn, that was when she sold the house to Harriet Tubman. She had just had it. Uh, and in Auburn, she had much more freedom to act the way she wanted because there, she was far, far away from all the very Southern uh, uh, rules of proper behavior. And, you know, that, that town where slavery was rampant. The constraints of what society expected her to be weren't as strict in Auburn. Yes, she had said uh, in 1850, soon after he, uh, Seward became senator, and she was in Washington with him, and she was going to all of these parties, including at the White House and the rest of it. She said she wrote to her sister, who also was a very, was a radical. She she wrote, "This is the life to which I am doomed." So it took her a long time to get up the courage to just to stand up to her husband and say, "That's it, no more." But she did it. Well, you know, we can again. So much of this is what goes on in real life for women today. Um, we have some more freedom, but we always have to stand up for ourselves. So let's go on to Martha, because I understand Ma Martha was a Quaker, seven children. Um, how was her family? She, she was a rebel from birth, and it was partly just kind of bred into her because she was a Quaker and her, her descendants, her, her uh, predecessors were some of the first settlers of Nantucket, and they, they were running away from Puritanism. So there were, and on Nantucket, women ran their own shops because their husbands were often whalers and they were out for, away for years at a time. They just, they just naturally ran everything. And so for Martha, she grew up with that idea. Her mother certainly had done that as well because her father had died young. And she just didn't want to be, she didn't, she hated the constraints of the separate sphere. She thought it was ridiculous that she should have to abide by laws that were made by privileged white men. And she, she just didn't want to do it. So she came, she, her frustrations bubbled up and came to the surface finally in 1848, when she was one of the organizers with her sister, Lucretia Mott, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton of the Seneca Falls Convention of uh, 1848. And that was her entry into actual activism. And she a little reluctantly at times because it was very unusual for women, her sister aside, her sister was a real aberration, for women to put themselves forward. Women were not even allowed to speak in public. Quaker ministers could do it because that was, that was all right in Quakerism, but otherwise it was just you know, seen as seen as completely improper. And it was hard for Martha to speak in public. It took her years and she never got over her fear of public speaking. Wasn't she actually called a dangerous woman? A very dangerous woman. Very dangerous and, woman. And that, that was interesting because she thought that the best way to educate uh, people she thought of as being, you know, unforgivably retrograde was by to show them how they should be acting. So she, at the Seneca Falls Convention, she met Frederick Douglass. She became cl a close friend of his whenever he, so he would constantly cross New York state to give on his lecture tours. She would always invite him to Auburn, invite him to dinner, to spend the night. And of course this was a scandal 
in town. And so she heard, she wrote to Lucretia after one party that she heard one woman whisper to another, who is that fine looking lady? And the, the other woman whispered back, that is Mrs. David Wright. She is a very dangerous woman. Because of course, Fred, uh, Martha was promoting social equality and that was just, it was not done. Let's just put it that way. I'd say. So you took four decades, um, you know, uh, years after the Civil War included, and you talk about the injustices um, that uh, really are still with us in some respect. But you took these women and you talked about the evolution from being totally dependent to finding their voice and actually being, um, you know, dissidents in, in, in so many respects. How do you see that playing in today's world? I thought of this a lot when I was writing the book, and it, it took me seven years to write it. So the country was going through different phases. When I started it, Barack Obama was president, the first black president. And I thought, okay, we are finally moving somewhere as a country. And then it looked as though Hillary Clinton was going to be the next president. So the first black president followed by the first female president. Of course, it didn't turn out that way. Uh, so in subsequent years, as the Me Too movement rose up and as Black Lives Matter rose up, I thought, yes, this is what these women and, and their abolitionist colleagues, many of them men, they sort of laid the, uh, created the blueprint for social activism in this country. They showed how you can create grassroots movements and, and by perseverance and, and just absolute dedication, make sure that you prevail. And so Martha Coffin Wright and even Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony died before women got the right to vote. It took that many decades. And yet it did, that amendment finally, finally did, uh, did come to pass. So, and Martha, they all knew that this was going to be a generations long project, uh, but they were extremely pragmatic and they absolutely believed that what they were doing had to happen because the, the American promise was being betrayed every day. And um, how about their children? Anyone, yeah. any of the, uh, Francis's or Martha's children um, or Harriet's uh, follow through and continue what they were doing? You know, Fanny Seward, who was the who was the youngest of Francis's four children, might well have done so. She had she was a very good writer and she kept a diary and she wanted she she was a total advocate of all of the causes her mother stood for, including animal rights. I mean, she was really, really something. But she tragically died young. Uh, the the her sons um, didn't want her. Uh, second eldest son did become a politician, but not on the same of the, on the same level as uh, as his father. And Martha, it was fascinating to see how I, I should say is initially she was very disappointed that none of her daughters, she had three daughters, that none of them followed her into uh, women's rights. Her, her first two married very young and had their own families. And then by the time Martha became an activist, she decided, okay, 
Ellen, who is her youngest daughter, she is going to be the Susan B. Anthony of her generation. And Martha worked very closely with Anthony and she would send Ellen to Rochester, which is where Anthony lived and have Anthony tutor her in, in the ways of organizing. But it turned out that Ellen had no interest in that. She was, she was very recessive. She just, she didn't feel she could measure up to her mother and all these amazing people that her mother consorted with. And she finally rebelled and she said, no, actually I just want to get married, have my own children and perhaps they will do better work in the world. And her, she married William Lloyd Garrison's one of his sons. And he was very much following in his father's footsteps and he spoke out about women's suffrage. And Ellen went with him to these gatherings, but she didn't speak herself. And then their, their daughter, Martha's granddaughter, uh, did become a philanthropist, married a very wealthy man in Boston, and became a philanthropist and uh, the head of the International Girl Scouts Association. And her family, Martha Coffin Wright's family to this day, are following in her footsteps. The, they have, the Osborne Foundation is a foundation that helps uh, newly released prisoners uh, find their way, you know, find jobs and make their way in the world once they're free again. So it's quite an amazing trajectory. It just didn't didn't happen as quickly as Martha would have liked it to have happened. But it happened. It happened. Um, and Harriet Tubman, from what I understand, outlived uh, Martha and Francis. She did. She it's just she and she had many physical handicaps inflicted on her by slaveholders early in her life as a young girl. Uh, but she carried on and she was still working almost until the, the point when she was bedridden, you know, close to death in 1913. She she fought on behalf of uh, new uh, after the war of newly liberated enslaved people. She sent she she had held fundraisers. She sent money to South Carolina, where she had worked during the war. She spoke to about women's suffrage. She spoke to black women's groups about the importance of black women finding their way and their independence. And in the final years, she it took her about a decade, she raised the money to build one of the first really humane uh, nursing homes for uh, indigent African-Americans. And it was on the property that Frances Seward had sold her. And it is now in the process of becoming a National Park Service uh, enterprise. They're, they're developed, they're, they're renovating the, the property. And it is, once, once COVID has lifted, it will be open to the public. What an amazing story. Three women, one of whom so many of us have heard of, the other two from, from such different backgrounds coming together, what message would you like to give young women who have no clue about what kind, for the most part, have no clue of where women um, not so long ago, uh, what they had to do for independence and where we are now? Martha said at one of her conventions, one of the women's rights conventions, and she was the president that year, so she, she, she gave a speech and she said, you know, we're not, she said just somewhat disingenuously because she knew how long the road was, but she said, we are, we are not that far, we are making our, ourselves heard, and very soon the world will say, here are the women who are going to do something. And I just love that, that was her spirit. And it, ha it took a long time. We're still at it, as we've discussed. Harriet, Martha, and Frances were women who had no power at all to change anything. And yet, 
look at what they achieved even in their lifetimes and then what they achieved on behalf of subsequent generations. And I, this is why I wanted to tell their story and why women, you know, women's voices just until recent decades, women's voices have been absent from history. We all know, I didn't, I didn't learn about any of these women uh, except for Harriet Tubman, who was just this abstract hero. And I learned about her in middle school. And again, only those 10 years of her life, but look at what she achieved. Amazing. Um, the book again is The Agitators, Three Friends Who Fought for Abolition and Women's Rights. Dorothy, where can people find out more about you? You can go to my website, which is www, nothing daunted. I mean, uh, sorry, that was my last book. <laughs> Let me take that again. You can go to my website, dorothywickenden.com. And uh, that has all the events and has a little bit about, about the book. And there are slideshows for both the Agitators, and my previous book, Nothing Daunted. And what's next on your list? What are you going to be writing on next? Oh, boy, that's a tough one. I'm still, I've got to get through the, this process of promoting <laughs> the book. And I do have a full-time job. So I have some thoughts in the back of my head, but not fully formed yet. Okay. Dorothy, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. I appreciate your time. And the book, as we said, uh, is now out available at all independent bookstores and of course you know you can google it online dorothy thank you so much thank you sylvia total pleasure thank you for joining me today if you liked what you heard please share it with another person you think would be interested and if you haven't already please subscribe join me next week when i talk to another extraordinary inspiring woman Today's podcast is sponsored by Upper Deck, the national full-service virtual gym that has reinvented the at-home workout experience. Upper Deck has more than 30 strength and cardio classes a week. Named Best Fitness Club in the Gold Coast for 2020, Upper Deck brings the gym to you with live coaching and motivation. Upper Deck's unique classes are interactive. They have two coaches, one leading your workout and one keeping her eyes on you providing feedback and encouragement in real time. For a free week of unlimited virtual classes with no strings attached, email info at upperdeckfitness.com and let Upper Deck know you're a Sylvia and me listener. This has been a Life of Prey production. <laughs>